Kids, you are dismissed for Children's Church, so go ahead and make your way to the back. For the rest of us, let's turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And you know, as we come to this passage of Scripture, we find an issue addressed that has probably touched everyone in this room, whether it's a parent or a close sibling or a son or daughter or niece or nephew, perhaps a close friend, we have all seen those who have gone through a divorce. Perhaps some of you this morning have recently gone through a divorce or have the possibility on the horizon. It's an issue that certainly is a part of our day and age where more marriages end in divorce than survive. So in a culture where we find divorce taking place so rampantly, as the church, we need to look to God's word and see what God has to say about this very important issue. And what we want to do is form an opinion about what constitutes God's image of divorce, God's outlook on divorce, and form our understanding on what God reveals, not on what culture tells us. So this morning, let's be very careful as we look into God's word to come at this without preconceived notions, without prejudice, and see what Jesus has to say about this issue as he confronts it in a very controversial situation. Let's go to our Lord in a word of prayer as we approach this. Father, I pray this morning that as we look into this text, that you would give us guidance and understanding from your eternal word and how we thank you that you speak with clarity toward this issue. Father, may we not muddy the waters by emotional responses, by what culture would teach us or tell us about this issue, but Lord, may we approach this according to the revelation that Jesus gives with much clarity, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we approach the subject of divorce this morning, we find here in Mark chapter 10, our Lord sharing with us an answer to a question that was asked of him. And what we want to see is this, that there's a lot of controversy concerning divorce and remarriage, not only in our day, but there was also controversy even in the day of Jesus. There were schools of thought that were divided on what the grounds for divorce were, and as a result, there was a whole lot of controversy, a lot of division among people who followed the Word of God. And what we're going to see is there were some real contrasting views on the grounds for divorce when Jesus was sharing his ministry. Look at the first verse of the 10th chapter. And what we're going to find is some setting for us. Jesus had left the area of Capernaum, and he was coming into an area that was in the region of Judea, but it was across the Jordan from Judea. Now, when we look at this, we just think, oh, wow, you know, geography, pastor, please. Don't get into the geography. But what we need to see is there were not only geographical changes, but there were also some political changes. 
And the political change that took place was Jesus had moved into the area of Herod and Herodias. And if you remember the story of Herod and Herodias, Herodias and Herod had married while Herodias was still the wife of Herod's brother. So what we find in verse 2 are some Pharisees coming to Jesus. And notice it says some Pharisees, verse 2 of chapter 10, came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, I think we have a clue about their motive in this passage because notice it says they came to test him. They weren't on a mission to find out information because they had concern about the issue of divorce and remarriage. That wasn't their purpose. They were trying to trap Jesus up. And how were they trying to do that? I think there are a couple of possibilities. Number one, this could have been a setup. If you remember in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, it says this. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were the followers of Herod, how they might kill Jesus. So let's do a little bit of backtracking. Remember, John the Baptist had spoken out against the divorce and remarriage of Herodias to Herod. And if you'll remember, she did not like anyone taking any kind of a moral stand and in order to combat that moral stand, she was not opposed to seeing to their demise. In other words, she would bump them off if she didn't agree. So what could have been going on here was perhaps a plot. If Jesus were to speak out against divorce, the Pharisees would be able to report back to Herodias. And as a result, Jesus would be in big trouble. And possibly the same fate that found John the Baptist could find Jesus. But there's also something else going on. When Jesus was teaching about divorce and remarriage a little bit later, he would have to take a position. And there were two large positions in the early church. Or excuse me, in, in the first century uh, when Jesus was doing his ministry. And here are the positions. One position was, and it was taught by a prominent rabbi, anybody can divorce anyone for any reason. Wife burns your dinner, bring her up on divorce. Wife talks back, ah, going to divorce her. Any reason that anybody had, divorce could take place, and they were just fine. That was one school of thought. Another school of thought was the idea that, no, it's only if there is premarital or postmarital infidelity. If during the engagement period you were unfaithful to your spouse, the husband finds out he could divorce you. Or if after you were married there was infidelity, the husband could divorce you. So those were the schools of thought that were in the day that Jesus was having to deal with. And they were based on a passage in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 24 says this, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and gives it to her and sends her from his house. Now, we'll get into the rest of the text a little bit later. But that was the, the main phrase that was the sticking point for these two schools of thought. So the Pharisees thought, look, if Jesus sides for, with one side or the other, he's lost half of the people. Because half of the people are going to be mad at him. So Jesus had to take a stand and he had to share what was truth. 
And so the Pharisees were setting him up, and they were trying to, in some way, bring about those who would stand against Jesus into a position where they could stand stronger against him. And very much a plot on the part of the Pharisees. And you know, as I started thinking about these differing schools of thought, and as I started thinking about how people argue about the issue of divorce in that first century, I thought, you know, we have the same thing 2,000 years later. There are a lot of different opinions within Christian circles about divorce. As a matter of fact, what we find in Christian circles is divorce has become as prominent in the church as it has in the outside world. Sometimes even more so because we bother to get married and many of those in the outside world don't. So there's a real issue that has brought about controversy within the church and very often that controversy is based more on a cultural or emotional connection rather than what God has to say about it. So I'm glad that Jesus was asked this question even though he was asked it for all the wrong reasons we find revelation concerning this important issue. And that's what we want to see as we go into this a little bit more. Look at verses 3 and 4. And when we come to verses 3 and 4, we find some confusion about the law permitting divorce. Notice it says, What did Moses command you? He replied. And what Jesus begins to do as he talks with the disciples and the Pharisees and all of those, the crowd that had gathered, what Jesus begins to do is he starts to share with people that it's not human opinion that matters, it's God's word. So rather than get into a philosophical debate about divorce and remarriage, let's look historically at God's word and let's see what God had to say. Notice his question, what did Moses command you? is a question about the law. And you know what the Pharisees were doing when it came to the law? They weren't looking at the law in terms of how can what I do honor God? They were approaching the law as what is the most I can get away with and still be okay? Now there's a big difference between those two approaches, isn't there? The approach that says what can I do to honor God? May look at something and say, you know, I have the right to do this, but it isn't right to do this, so I'm not going to. We look and we say, I want to honor God by my behavior, no matter what it means. Not looking at my rights and selfishly saying, what's the most I can get away with? What can I do and not get in trouble with God, but still meet my selfish needs? That was the approach of the Pharisees. What can I do? get away with it, and still meet my selfish needs. So Jesus is asking them to go back into the law, to look into the law of Moses, but I think subtly he's also getting these Pharisees to stop and think about why are you concerned about what the law says? Is it so that you can find loopholes and do what you want to do? Or is it so you can honor God by what you do? And that brings us to the fourth verse. Their simple response was, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send the wife away. Their response was technically accurate. As we saw in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 24, there was a certificate of divorce that was allowed in circumstances where a husband would divorce his wife. But 
What we're going to see as Jesus begins to answer their question and give them a correct view concerning marriage is this. That wasn't God's original intent. The certificate for divorce came in as an accommodation for man's sinful behavior, not something that God wanted in marriage or designed in marriage from the beginning. And that brings us to our next point. What is the correct view of marriage biblically? And that's what Jesus begins to share with us here in the fifth verse. It was a concession, this divorce, that Moses speaks of, this certificate of divorce. It was a concession, and it was due to the hardness of men's hearts. Look at the fifth verse with me. In the fifth verse, it says, It was because of your heart, because your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote you this law. So first point is this. Divorce wasn't brought about because God looked and said, divorce is a good thing. I think I'm going to amend my position on marriage and allow for divorce. That isn't why it was brought into the picture. God originally intended a man and a woman to be together forever. When they were married, it was for life. Not something that was to end because of a whim or because of a bad day or a bad month or even a bad year. It was something that God wanted to last. So divorce was introduced by man, not by God. And God had to deal with what man introduced. That's Jesus' first point. But then look at verse 6 as the text continues. In verse 6 it says, But at the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Now I'm going to pause here for just a moment because in our culture, as well as in Jesus' culture, this is a significant part of the passage. God has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. That's clearly stated in Scripture. Culturally, there are those who would like to amend that and have it say that there is same-gender marriage, but the Bible doesn't allow for that in God's original intent. God created distinct genders, and he meant for those genders to be a part of marriage, not same-gender marriage. And Jesus' words are clear in this passage concerning it. There's no question. That's why he goes on to say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. God's intention generationally. Mother, father would be man and woman. And then husband, wife, man and woman. The idea is that God designed marriage to be distinct and different genders coming into a union of relationship. And it's important that we not allow society to dictate our views concerning this. When you look at the first century, many believe that Mark was written to the Greek and to the Roman cultures. And when we look in the first century, the Greek and Roman cultures had probably a higher level of homosexuality than we have in our culture today. So the same issues that we face today were faced by the first century believers, and Mark is addressing it head on, not considering what the society saw, not looking and saying, how will I adapt what God originally intended and somehow 
twisted and distorted to where it fits a cultural norm. What they said was God is the one who is the creator and the determiner of what marriage is. And so Jesus was very clear. God intended a man to be married to a woman. Now, what happens in the church a lot of times is we look at that and we will pick up arms and say, oh, you know, this is such an important part of the passage that we forget about the rest of the passage. And I want us to look at verse 7 as the passage continues. Because what we find in verses 6 through 9 is the very fact that the Creator expresses what He intended for marriage, that it be between a man and a woman, and that the man leaves his family and cleaves to his wife. But then look at verse 8. In verse 8, the text goes on to say, the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What is God's original intent for marriage? That a man and a woman become united physically and that they become one flesh as far as God is concerned. Now that's important for us to understand on a lot of levels. One of the reasons that God does not want promiscuity is because his intent is this that one man and one woman come together in union physically and that it illustrates the union that God has formed as far as marriage. God wants Christian people to recognize that and to not be engaged in spreading their moral behavior or immoral behavior around with others. God wants us to be committed to one person and he wants us to express that physically with one person. So that's God's intent for marriage. And it's brought out crystal clear right here in this text that they join together physically, the two become one flesh. And then it goes on to say they are no longer two but one. And then look at the ninth verse. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. God's point concerning divorce in this passage is, again, very clear. Marriage is more than a ceremony that takes place in a church or in a courtroom. It's not just two people coming together and finding a legal agreement that they're coming into and then being uh, in effect as long as that legal agreement is in effect, but once we set aside the legal agreement, no big deal. That's not marriage. Notice the ninth verse says what God has joined together, let not man separate. God is the one who uniquely and spiritually brings the two together and brings them into a union. It's more than just a physical act of intimacy. It's more than just a legal declaration by a court or an authority. It is something that God is in the middle of. And that's what he wants us to understand about marriage. It's, there's a spiritual element to marriage that's crucial and that we must embrace and understand. So when God is saying in this text what God has joined together, let not man separate, he's saying as the creator, you have no right as the created to undo what I've done. That's the clear message that God wants us to grasp concerning marriage. But then the text 
continues. And as we come to the 10th verse, we find a general principle that's given to us. Committing adultery is done when we divorce and remarry. We need to understand that on a general principle when we arbitrarily choose to divorce our spouse and go marry someone else, we have committed adultery against our original spouse. Look at what the scripture says. Verse 10, when they were in the house again, Jesus, or the disciples asked Jesus about this, and he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Now there are some dynamics here that we have to look at. Jesus is giving a principle concerning marriage where he has just established what God has joined together, let not man separate, and then it's followed by the statement, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. It's very clear, very straightforward. God does not intend for divorce to take place. But then he does something amazing. Now for us, when we read the 12th verse, it's no big deal. It says, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, then she commits adultery. For us, we say, okay, male, female, I got that. But understand this. In the first century culture, women did not have the right to divorce men in the Jewish community. Remember, he's answering Pharisees. A man could divorce his wife for immorality, but a wife could not divorce her husband for immorality. That was the way it went down in the first century in the Jewish community. And so Jesus is being revolutionary here. He's saying it's not only wrong for men, but he's also saying it's wrong for women. And what I think he was doing was pointing to the inconsistency of the Pharisees. The Pharisees made their own rules and had better rules for men than for women. How do you like that one, ladies? Isn't that wonderful? Jesus was saying it works both ways because you can't isolate one gender and give them more rights than another gender. So Jesus was talking about equality here in a very profound and important way. But notice the statement, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. It's very, very clear, very, very straightforward. Jesus wanted people to understand that as far as God is concerned, Divorce should not be an option. So let's talk about this. In our culture, and as a pastor who has counseled for over 30 years, I've found a lot of people who have come to me and said, I want to get a divorce. Very often, what I've found is the divorce is in mind because of disagreement, because of incompatibility, because I don't love the other person anymore. So there's a number of reasons that people will come and say, I want a divorce, that frankly, when we look at scripture, they're not borne out in scripture as valid reasons. And that's why it's important for us, if we're a child of God, to work through the rough spots in marriage, to understand that 
I have a responsibility to God first, since he joined us together, to see this marriage through. And you know what I've found? The people who have worked it through, and emphasis on work, right? It takes a lot of work to have a successful marriage. But the ones who have worked it through have come into marriages that are a blessing for many of them. There are those few that suffer through a difficult marriage all of their life. And it's a difficult thing for them to do, but in obedience to the Lord, they do it. But then I've also seen some where a couple comes together and they've already decided before they come into the office they're getting a divorce. And I think they're looking for a loophole as to how they can get out of their marriage. And I can't give them one. So they go ahead and divorce anyway. And you know what I found? In many of those instances, they look and they say, after they remarry, I have more problems with this marriage than I did my first marriage. And by the way, Statistics bear that out. Second marriages end in divorce at a greater rate than first marriages. And so they're facing a, a difficult problem. And many of them confide in me, I wish I had stayed with my previous spouse and worked it out. So what Jesus is saying here, I think, is very clear. If you're in a marriage... Stay in the marriage, work it through, because God's intent in joining you together was not to separate you, but to keep you together. To honor and glorify him, we need to have that outlook, that I will do what it takes, I will commit myself to the success of this marriage, and let me tell you something, two believers who are committed to making a marriage work out wholeheartedly, yielding to the Lord, any marriage can be saved, any marriage can be worked out. But it takes two. You have to have two people that are saying, we will work through this together. Now, if I were to end the sermon right here, I wouldn't be giving you the full picture. There's one other thing that we need to consider, and that is this. A correct doctrinal position factors in some other passages of Scripture. Mark had a purpose in sharing this passage of Scripture to show the differences that were developing between him and the Pharisees. So he didn't go into as much detail as Mark does in his account of Jesus' statements about marriage and divorce. So what I would like for us to do is consider some passages from the book of Matthew that give us a more extended quote. The first passage is found in Matthew chapter 5. And what I would like for you to do, grab your Bible. If you don't have one, grab one off the back of the pew and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. You know, we find an interesting structure here in Matthew chapter 5 as we look at Jesus talking about the issue of divorce, we find some parallels between this passage and Mark's passage in chapter 10. 
For instance, look at verse 29 of Matthew chapter 5, and it says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of the body and your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like the close of the ninth chapter of the book of Mark, doesn't it? Why differing contexts where Jesus made similar statements? Because Jesus made the same statement more than once. Hey, I'll tell you what, if I'm teaching, I'm not just going to say one thing, one time only, and you get it or you don't. If I want a lot of people to hear an important doctrine, I'm going to repeat it to differing groups. And that's what happens between Matthew and Mark. Now, Matthew, immediately after talking about this right hand and so forth being cut off, goes into the issue of divorce, and notice what he says. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But then verse 32 goes on to say, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife causes her to commit an adult, become an adulteress, and anyone who marries the divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what did I leave out? An important clause, except for marital unfaithfulness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, Mark gives a more extended quote than the one that we find in the book, or excuse me, Matthew gives a more extended quote than the one that we find in Mark. And so what he's saying is this. If there is marital infidelity, God gives us the opportunity to break the marriage relationship. Then turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, we find once again this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees, and we find a more extended quote given to us in the ninth verse. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Notice it says this, after being asked about the certificate of divorce, verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard because it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, and marries another woman, commits adultery. So in both of these passages, there's an exception clause. If you have someone who has committed marital unfaithfulness, adultery, you have the opportunity to divorce that person. And here's why. When we look at the one flesh relationship, God designed marriage to be a one flesh relationship between a man and a woman, right? We've seen that clearly revealed in what Jesus said. But what we need to understand is this. God considers us uniting with another person to be entering into a one flesh relationship with that other person. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Notice it says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Now look at verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. 
What happens in marital unfaithfulness is this. You made a covenant, a commitment before God that you would stay in a one-flesh relationship with your spouse. So you decide, I'm going to go over here and have a one-flesh relationship with somebody else. You have broken the covenant of the one-flesh relationship with your spouse by uniting physically with the other person. And it's brought out very clearly in Scripture. That's exactly what you're doing. So the innocent party has two options. One, forgiveness and reconciliation, which I think is the better option if possible. Or, because the marriage covenant has been breached, to end the marriage. Particularly when there is an a pattern of unfaithful behavior where the spouse says, I will live as though I'm not married but still remain married to you. The believer does not have to live in an intolerable situation like that because the spouse has broken the covenant because of the hardness of their heart. I think there's one other instance where God permits divorce and that's in desertion. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the scripture describes a situation where a believer is married to an unbeliever. Now what would happen very often in the early church is this. Two people are married. One of the spouses converts to Christ. And so the spouse, who is not a follower of Christ, starts to see a change in the behavior of the one who has dedicated their heart and their life to Christ. And you know what they say? I just can't put up with the change in behavior. You used to do all the stuff that I'm doing, and you won't do it anymore. I married that person, not this person, so I'm leaving. I want nothing to do with you, and I want nothing to do with your faith, so I'm out of here. That is desertion. And what the scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and let's turn to that passage rather than just looking at the screen, because in this passage, the Apostle Paul shares something very important for us to grasp, and it is this, that if the unbeliever is willing to stay married, and you're a believer, you remain married. Notice verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. To the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, if any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a woman has a husband who is not a believer and he is willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife has been sanctified through her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But then look at the verse that follows, verse 15. But if the believer leaves, let him do so. A believing man or woman is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to peace. Here's the idea. If a believer is married to an unbeliever, you can't handcuff them to the radiator 
and say, you're going to stay in this marriage, you can't leave, right? If they choose to leave, there's nothing you can do about it. And as a pastor, I have seen that situation on several occasions. One party is abandoned by another party. They try to reconcile, they plead to have the other person stay in the marriage, but the truth about marriage is it takes two. So if one person is dedicated to leaving and they've committed to leaving you, there's nothing you can do about it. And God recognizes that. And God is reasonable in that. So God allows for that. And the idea that you are no longer bound carries with it the idea that you are no longer in a marriage that the person has left you, either for another or just to go off on their own because they no longer want to be married. So that's what Scripture shares with us concerning divorce and remarriage and some other passages. There's one other passage I want you to consider, and that is this. For many of you, you were married, you divorced, and then you found a personal relationship with God. And you look back and you say, now that I have a relationship with God, I've started to build a relationship with another believer here, and I really want to marry them. Can I get married if I have a divorce in my background? And this is what I believe concerning this. When you find Jesus Christ, your sin is washed away. You get a clean slate. You start all over again. God does not isolate divorce as the one sin that he says isn't under the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you have a pre-conversion divorce, my understanding of Scripture is you have an option as a believer to marry. You are not committing adultery. And I base that on several Scriptures, but one of the most compelling is Colossians, where it says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of your sins except for divorce. No. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that stood against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. It's great that God gives us the opportunity for new life in Christ. You know, this morning, as I look out over the congregation, I know that some of you have experienced the pain of divorce. I know that some of you are in very challenging marriages and situations. I understand that. But let me say this to you. If your marriage is salvageable, work on it. By salvageable, I mean if there hasn't been immorality, unfaithfulness, if you're just not getting along, work on starting to get along. Apply the word of God to your life. Apply the scripture to your spouse. Love isn't just a feeling. Love is a decision commitment. And let me say this. If you're in a marriage and you feel like you've lost love, you haven't lost love, you've just lost feeling. Feeling can come and go. Love is something that lasts because it's a decision to commit yourself to another person. So renew that commitment. 
work toward building the marriage and see what God does. If you're a person who has gone through the pain of divorce or is going through the pain of divorce, also understand this. God loves you. There is no sin that does not come under the blood of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness. So understand the importance of, from this point forward, walking with Christ and living what he has taught about marriage. If you have had, as a Christian, an unscriptural divorce, it might mean that you choose to remain single the rest of your life. That may be one of the options that we have to consider. If, as a Christian, you have had a scriptural divorce, infidelity, or desertion, then understand that God, by his grace, gives you an opportunity for another life and another marriage. And embrace that as a precious gift from God. This morning we've seen God's intent for marriage, and I don't want to close the sermon without a reiteration of this. God intended marriage to last. God intended that what he joins together, man does not separate. So as followers of Jesus Christ, let me say this, the marriage that you are in right now, invest in it. Recognize the importance of, for God's honor and glory, keeping this marriage together and working toward building a stronger marriage. But if you're in a situation where God has allowed you to go through divorce because of an unfaithful spouse or someone else, also understand this. You're important to God. You are loved by God. And you're important to this church. Sometimes people who go through a divorce, separate themselves from the church, and they isolate themselves, and they never want interaction with Christians because they're ashamed that it didn't work out. Listen, church is a place for broken people to come together to find reconciliation with God and perhaps even with the spouse that they've been divorced from. Come and talk to somebody about what you're going through rather than isolating yourselves and tearing the world. God wants us here to support one another, to love one another, and to find a place where we can grow in our relationship with the Lord. That's why we're all here together, to help one another in that regard. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much.